This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including eBooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to the New Books Network. I'm your host, Kyle Beadle, and today we'll be talking to Professor Graham Smith about his new book entitled Can Democracy Safeguard the Future? Professor Smith is Professor of Political Politics and the Director of the Center for the Study of Democracy at the University of Westminster and Chair of the Foundation for Democracy and Sustainable Development. He is also the author of Democratic Innovations, Designing Institutions for Citizens' Participation, which came out in 2009 from the Cambridge University Press. Thank you, Professor Smith, for being here today. How are you doing? I'm very well, and please call me Graham. Of course. Thank you. Um, So, Graham, uh, can you tell us a little bit about yourself, your background, and how you came to writing this book? Gosh, how much do you want? Um, <laughs> so I, I'll take you back to um, I'll take you back just before I did my PhD, which is which is actually a long time ago, and I was working in um, local government, and uh, the Agenda Twenty One had just been signed, which was the big document from the Rio Earth Summit in nineteen ninety two. That shows you how old I am. And my job was I was in the planning department. I was basically told, you know, can you do the public engagement around this massive Rio Earth Summit document? And I went out and, in, and did try to do public engagement and did it incredibly badly. Um, and that have now spent the last 30 years of my life trying to figure out precisely why I did it so badly. And so my, my kind of interest has been in that question of how you can meaningfully engage people in the decisions that affect their lives. And that's not just their, what I would talk about as everyday decisions, but also those sort of really large strategic decisions. And I think issue and we can talk about this some more maybe but often participatory democracy and other forms of engagement focus very much on the local but i'm really interested in this question about how you can engage people in in the really significant decisions we face and i've always been had an interest in environmental issues so not surprising that then it expressed itself in relation to climate change yeah so uh I guess let's just jump straight into the book itself. Uh, you kind of begin by outlining how democracies fail in uh, to deal with the long-term issues. Can you talk a bit about what current long-term issues that democracies are struggling to address? Oh goodness, where do we start with that? Well, I clearly mentioned I clearly mentioned climate change, but uh, you know, which which up until a year ago I would have said was the most obvious issue, but we've got one facing us now and. Uh, as a globe around COVID-19 and the sort of extent to which many, um, you know, what are supposed to be highly advanced industrial democracies fail dismally in preparing themselves and then responding to the, the, you know, 
to um, a, a pandemic, which although we didn't know exactly when it was going to come and in what kind of way it would come, it was expected that something would come. And apparently we had prepared ourselves. It turns out we hadn't actually. Um, so that's one example, as I say, climate change is another. But, you know, it's also more traditional issues around things, for example, like long term health and social care and even um, the sort of investment in infrastructure. Um, you know, we I mean, both both, side, both sides of the pond. So in the US and in the UK, you know, we we, we suffer from crumbling infrastructure and a failure to invest in, in invest in those sorts of uh, areas. And then we can think about sort of emerging technologies like biotech and um, AI and that sense in which we're sort of just waiting for them to happen rather than preparing ourselves and thinking about what the ethical and political and social and economic responses we'd like to see in, in, in relation to these. So, so there's a whole range of issues where democracies, so democracies can think long term, you know, that's not, a, that's not, I'm not claiming that they don't. And there are lots of examples that we can show that they have at various points. But my argument is there is a tendency and there are particular sets of drivers that mean democracies are particularly are particularly poor at long term thinking. And, and as a caveat, we might come to this a, a, a later. This is not an argument for authoritarianism. They're even worse. <laughs> yeah. So what is it that drives current democratic systems into thinking about the short term? So, so in, in, in the book, and, and this is not exhaustive, and, and, and one of the things um, we should perhaps say up front about the book is it is a short book. So I've kind of, I'm, I'm introducing a lot of ideas, um, hopefully in an accessible way. And, and I know a lot of these could be developed further. But I, in the book, I kind of focus on four particular issues. Uh, one of them is the non-existence of future generations. So one of the things we know about democracy is it is more or less responsive to the people who vote. Or the people who can make a, make a noise. Uh, there's lots of evidence to show it, show it isn't that responsive to some of those people, but we can leave that to one side. But it sure as hell isn't response, responsive to those people who, who aren't yet born or who uh, or who yet can't can't yet vote. Uh, and one of the things we've known from um, you know feminist analysis over the years is if if you're not present, and they're, they're talking about women in this case, you know your interests aren't catered for, aren't, aren't responded to. So. For future generations, immediately we've got this problem that, that the people who are going to be most affected by failure to think long term just aren't simply there able to make the case. The second is electoral cycles, this tendency for politicians to operate on two, three, four year cycles and the, the, the requirement or that sense that, that requirement to deliver for populations within that time period and very hard for populations who often have a high level of distrust and lack of confidence in political institutions to think that the claims of politician are worth any any you know are worth the paper they're written on. So there's the electoral electoral cycle issue. Thirdly, there's the problem of sort of incumbent interests. We can think about this in relation to climate change, and we can just think look back at how powerful lobbies, particularly those um, industries that were you know whose profits were based in fossil fuels, just simply uh, blocked any possibility of change. Um, and, you know, so that's a, a, an example of sort of resistance from those people who do well out of the short term economic system we have. And then finally, the economic system itself, that there are certain dynamics of contemporary capitalism, particularly sort of the fast, spe- you know, the sort of speed, the speed and intensity and focus of speculative capitalism, which operates on extremely short term cycles, time cycles. We might also think about 
the effect that that has on us as individuals in relation to consumer capitalism and the way that we are endlessly pushed to consume rather than thinking about uh, you know orientating ourselves to, to, to longer longer term longer term questions of how we lead a good life so I, I want to suggest that each of those those drivers are sort of analyt- analytically distinct but they do kind of overlap with each other and I just think they're a useful framing device for thinking about what it is about our political institutions that that, 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 that generates sort of short-termism within democracy. Yeah, and kind of in response to um, the democratic uh, myopia, you present kind of an overabundance of innovations and examples of for how we kind of reimagine these current institutions that you were just kind of laying out. Um, I mean, overabundance, I mean, uh, just throwing them one after the other. Um, no, I, which... one, one strategy is to overwhelm the reader with ideas and then... <laughs> Then they hope that their brains explode, and then you don't have to. You don't have to worry after that. <laughs> which, which certainly was good in this case, um, because you you just you just uh, keep the wheels turning and <laughs> really um, get you thinking about uh, how to maybe combine these combine these different approaches. Um, but you present uh, these examples for how we can reimagine these current institutions. Um, can you kind of explain some of those proposals that are present now or just kind of being thought up yeah, yeah, for how to so. future safe? Yeah. yeah, no, sure. So, so the, the approach, the approach in the book is, is to, is to look at in, in, institutions. And, and of course that I first want to say that that's, that's in some ways is a limited approach, but you know, I'm really interested in that question about how we can design institutions to, to think more long-term. And of course um, I'm, I'm actually not coming up with a single institution that's going to do the job. You know, I'm really interested in how different institutions have different characteristics and might be combined. And we might come back to that later. But in the book, I kind of, I, I, I and so, and I don't pretend in the book to be exhaustive, although although I throw a lot of material at you. I'm, it's illustrative in about, and I'm trying to get people to think about institutions in different types of ways. And so I start in the book by looking at, are sort of, you know, the core legitimating institutions of democracies, namely legislatures, and also a little bit of thinking around constitutions. And one of the one of the points I made, and it, it was a throwaway line at the time, but I think it I think it's quite a it's quite it's 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 an important thought, is that actually if you wanted to design an institution that you know that had short-term tendencies, it would be an ele- it would be a legislature, where people are elected on short on short time scales, and where ele- where where um, interest interest groups have have easy access, uh, and where certain types of actors like future generations can't be present. And so I look at some attempts that are made, and and to 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 try and make reforms and, and you know there's an interesting example of a a committee for the future in finland which has been put in place which has helped in some ways to orientate politicians who have been in that committee towards the long term and, and a lot of politicians have been through it say it has it is important but it has no legislative bite it doesn't have the capacity to um to challenge uh legis- legislation as it goes through so you know it's more of a sort of you know, it helps develop some sort of cultural change. Um, and that's one of the best institutions I could find. Um, so apart from that, you know, we've got people talking about, we've, there are ideas out there, proposals out there, either, either to 
extend representation. So some representatives do represent the long term, do represent future generations, if you like. And even some go as far as representing nature, but I don't really deal with that so much in the book. And then others talking about how we might change the electoral system to, you know, either disenfranchise the old elderly because there's too many older people who aren't thinking long term. So the argument goes, I don't necessarily hold that. And then others arguing for sort of radically um, reducing the voting age in order to bring younger people into the into the process. And each of these I look at very briefly and suggest that they're all problematic in different ways, very often because they sort of undermine the democratic logic of of one person, one vote. You know, very often it's kind of it is that those people with apparently enlightened interests who might get a second vote or, you know, or political parties will be able to game this process. So or certain people like older, older voters might be disenfranchised. So I kind of I don't want to give up on the legislature. And later on in the book, I talk about people who are talking about sortition legislatures, the use of lot and, uh, the use of random selection for for legislatures. And I think there's some interesting ideas in there, although they're, they're a bit underdeveloped. But I but I I'm kind of saying, you know, we have a problem that our core legitimating institution just is not uh, well designed for the long term. So I start looking around for other institutions, and the couple that I spend most time on the in, in the book are independent offices for future generations. And there's been a couple of those in um, uh, Hungary and Israel, which have, have, whose power, one of them was uh, abolished, the others had its powers reduced, and still one in Wales, uh, in the United Kingdom, which is, which is starting to have an interesting impact on the polity. And the other thing I look at is this sort of in, rising interest in... Um, what we might call citizens' assemblies and other sorts of forms of deliberative mini-publics, which are selected by random. And, I, and I, I've got a kind of, I, I show how both of those developments are really interesting for different ways. Um, and particularly, I've got a particular interest in the latter cl- uh, citizens' assemblies, because I think there are certain characteristics of those bodies that mean that they are democratic, but protect them from some of these drivers of short-termism. Again, I don't want the book to be misread, and I'm sure it will be misread because people people uh, choose to choose to read things in the way that they <laughs> wish. I'm not making the argument that we need that that these sorts of assemblies will solve everything. What I'm saying is, oh, isn't it interesting that we've got this institution that we've started using over over the last decade or so? I mean, they've got 50 years of uh, half a half a century of practice, but you know, become more more um, prominent in the last five to ten years which actually do have the kinds of characteristics that allow partic- participants and members to think long term. And so for me, then that's an, and that, that then should make us think, OK, so if, the, if those institutions, then how could they be integrated more, um, more into the political system? And or how can we use what we've learned from those to think about institutional design? So sorry, that was a long sort of attempt <laughs> to cover, cover four cha- three chats of a book. But I hope that gives you a a flavour of the diversity of different types of approaches that I'm that I'm I'm taking. Yeah, and I think I think we can kind of since it is so broad, we can kind of dive in a little bit more um, into kind of what we can learn from the formation of new independent uh, institutions. Yeah. So so the the do you want me to start with the with with the offices for future generations? Yeah, that'd be perfect. Yeah. Okay. So so the, you know this is a really interesting idea, and this is the idea of of creating an institution you know so, so it's um created through legislature through the legislature but but an independent body that has a function in 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 think in, in helping the institution to think long term 
Um, you know, th- this has been created where polities have realised there is a dysfunction in the system and, and created these bodies. But there's an irony here, which is that those bodies that have been created by politicians because they recognise their short term, then start having a bite and then stop politicians doing what they want, which is acting in the short term. And so the sort of the, the backlash from the politicians is then to abolish the very institutions or to di- disempower the very institutions they've created. And this happened in Israel, where there was a parliamentary commission which had the capacity to delay legislation by asking for information, etc. And the politicians just simply got sick of it. There are some questions about whether there were things about personal relationships at play here that, that you know, particular political figures didn't get on. But But there's a general point here about politicians not liking their hands to be hands to be tied even though they'd actually tied them themselves and again a similar kind of thing happens in Hungary where we find um, the sort of right-wing Fidesz government starting to have a bonfire of independent agencies because it doesn't like to doesn't like democratic uh, constraints um, so you know I think there is a, that these bodies have a really interesting role and the fact there is an institution that is there to raise the profile of the interests of future generations is 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 a is a real institutional innovation. It's a real real creative moment, and I think the what, what it tells us though is that we've got to think of ways that we can that these bodies can become more politically legitimate, that actually they can embed themselves in a way and protect themselves. And one of the problems they face: most independent bodies have a have an actually existing constituency who who support that body, and of course the constituency of obviously future generations clearly doesn't exist they i mean obviously environmentalists and others may be interested but don't have the same level uh, of support so again falls on that hurdle of, of that sort of first driver of short-termism i was saying where, where there is no actually existing constituency so one of the other things i think about in the book is how we might build that political legitimacy but but i, I do think it's a really interesting development the one thing i would say though um is that there is a danger of thinking that an institution like this, which I would call an elite institution, you know, like kind of uh, very often an expert-led or a or a politically elite-led institution. Um, it, it's again for for someone who's interested in in democracy, the, the, the always that reaching for yet another elite-led institution I find slightly problematic. Um, a because I'm a Democrat and I want to see sort of more democratic engagement, but B also from a sort of what I, an epistemological position, mm-hmm. which is that. Um, I think when we think about future generations, again, this is a sort of, I guess, an argument I've, I've taken from from arguments around feminist epistemology is that you know, where we're situated within society will mean that we think very differently about the interests of long terms, uh, about the interests of future generations. We often think about future generations in the abstract as like a single entity. But within any any future generation, there are going to be differentiations of power. There are going to be losers and winners. And I think when we think about future generations, our position in society now will have an will have a really significant impact on the perspective we have on the on what we need to do in relation to future generations. So, one of my worries about sort of having a singular commissioner who will often be driven, drawn from the political class is that it will be a particular orientation towards the future, and I want to sort of see that radically demo, demo, democratized and seeing a diversity of voices. I think that, that, that there is that weakness with. So even though this is a really interesting innovation and its independence means it has a potential to operate outside electoral cycles, um, you know, that, that sort of diversity question is also critical for me. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. 
Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Right, and I think, I think kind of what you ki- are kind of pushing readers towards is kind of changing their perspective on democracy, which is a positive I, thing. I, 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 well, I, I, there's a certain point where uh, you say that um, to sure um, some things um, like randomly selecting um, a jury or something like that does decrease um, does decrease representation like our idea of democratic representation going in voting for a representative. But what it does do is it opens the opportunity for uh, broader um, diversity and where our current election institutions kind of fail in providing that currently. Yeah. Yeah. I and, kind of and, that was kind of a word soup, but maybe you can no, 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 explain no, 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 that a absolutely. bit. Absolutely. And of course of course every author has a way of trying to lead their uh, reader in certain directions. But one of my one of the directions I'm want to take us in is that is is to think that democracy is more than electoral representation. Um and you know, th- this is a simple argument that we might go back to the Athenians, is that, you know, for them uh, elections were were the way that you generated oligarchy for Aristotle, not for them. Sorry, the them, the Greeks, as if they're all one person. But for Arist- for, Ar- for Aristotle, you know, if you elections were were the sort of led to a manifestation of oligarchy, and democracy was realised through random selection. And so it's it's kind of interesting that as Democrats now, and this is a very highly simplistic reading of of, of democracy, but useful for for our purposes here. As Democrats now, we think of democracy as an electoral, as the electoral process. That's the way that we define. You know, people like Joseph Schumpeter. Actually, their definition of democracy is about electoral competition between elites. That is what democracy is. And I really want to push back against that and want to suggest that there are other ways we can realise and express democracy. And so that's what that, as you say, that's that. And part of that is about how we. Um, you know, who has power and who gets to exercise power and whose voices are heard. And I do worry about democracy in the 21st century being being uh, something which is restricted to a, a, a ever, 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 ever thinning political class um, with very with very particular sets of perspective and very particular sets of experiences. Um, and hence this desire for di- you know for diversity and this this then buys into you know is 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 part of my argument about when we think about future generations we need that diversity because otherwise we're going to have very limited perspectives on what what is and what isn't in the interest of future generations after all future generations aren't here and we you know let's let's not get too involved in the philosophical conundrums but you know future generations aren't here to represent their own interests so we need to at least think about the diversity of perspectives we have about those interests before making decisions about what we do in the long term. And so for me, you know, the second best solution here in terms of since future generations can't represent themselves is, is, to, is to generate that condition for diversity. 
Um, and but it isn't. There is a danger here, and I, I think you know it's a comment I make somewhere in the book about then just rushing to a kind of you know a sort of uh, participatory participation or you know diversity on any you know diversity on itself in in itself will will, so, will solve the problem. And then one of the things I find interesting about um, citizens assemblies and other other processes like that is the way that they combine random selection with deliberation. And for me, deliberation has a number of qualities, but one of them is it gets us into what um, Kahneman famously calls sort of systems two thinking or, or slow thinking. Much of our thinking is highly responsive and reactive, and that's how we get around the world. We can't spend our time mulling on things. But actually, when it comes to policy about future generations, we want to mull on things. We want to create spaces where we do that. So we don't want to do opinion polling on what should we do about climate change, for goodness sake. We actually need to bring a diverse group of people together and spend time together and to reflect and learn and to deliberate. So I kind of attracted to these institutions. And again, I don't want to say they're a silver bullet, but I'm attracted to them because they seem to have these qualities, which which seem to be the very qualities we're missing in the political institutions that we that we have today. Yeah, uh, and can you kind of explain how uh, these citizen assemblies and kind of these deliberative mini publics, uh, how they kind of come into play, how they how they make us have more democracy, and how that kind of leads to future thinking? Yeah, um, I mean, at the moment, all I can do is point towards examples, which which are which um, and you know which are currently on the margins of politics. So. Um, I mean, there are some examples where where they've had really significant impact, um, and you know, it's not on the issue we're looking at right now. But the Irish uh, Citizens Assembly, and and as as I say, this is not not related, but you know, it was a game changer because you know this assembly met to discuss the um, the uh, constitutional status of abortion, decided that there should be a liberalisation of abortion. And then that was put to a vote, uh, put to a referendum, and the constitution was eventually changed in Ireland back in the in 20, 2016, 2017, they met, and then in 2018, the referendum happened. And that was a real game changer for these randomly selected bodies, because that kind of showed that they could be used on a significant level. So more recently, what we've seen around climate change, for example, is in both um, in different ways, and we can talk about this in some de- some detail if you wish. But you know, I won't go into too much detail. But in France and in the UK, they've, we've we've had significant climate assemblies, which have been tasked with. In the UK, they, the assembly was tasked with how can the UK meet its uh, obligation for um, decarbonisation, you know, zero carbon um, emissions by twenty fifty. A similar kind of thing. In, in France, we've got one just reporting yesterday, in fact, from Scotland. There's one just been set up in Denmark, which is meeting online at the moment. I know there's talk of one in Austria and Finland. So these things are popping up. Um, and at the moment, and there's, no re- and there's no reason why this has to stay the case, they are bodies that are usually commissioned by government, national government, local government or some other, given a task which is in this case, as I say, achieving net zero or something like that, that that is then usually handed over to an independent body to run the organisation. They set up really careful governance structures to make sure that the the participants get, um, uh, you know, sound information from different sides of the argument and uh, they they have time to deliberate. So, and what I haven't told you is how the people get there in the first place. So that, 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 that's helpful. 
and usually what's used is a is um, what's often referred to as civic lottery. So you would send out te- uh, thousands of invitations to households, uh, saying, "Would you be interested in participating in this activity in this in this assembly?" Those who are interested send their send their letters back. Then you have a pie, you know, usually thinking of getting somewhere between five or six hundred responses, something like that. And from that, you you um, you stratified sampling to ensure that the hundred or so people that you select look like the wider population in relation to gender, in relation to age. In the UK, it would include ethnicity. In the UK, interestingly, they also included the question about how concerned are you about climate change. So that so they had a real spread of people, both demographically but also attitudinally. And as I say, those people are then taken through that process. In the UK, it was the equivalent of between, I think, about four weekends, although they had to go online for the last weekend because of because of COVID. And so that was broken up over a number of weekends. In France, it's, it was seven or eight weekends. And so they, these have been, I, I see these as significant interventions into the system. And critics are saying, well, you know, they don't seem to have had so much impact yet. So, well, they're new. You know, this is the fact they even took place. The fact they even were held is really quite amazing. And then if we look at, you know, and so that's those are typically sort of bodies that generate recommendations for governments to respond to or parliaments to respond to. We're seeing some really interesting practice emerging in Poland where local mayors agree to implement before the process starts, implement anything which has over 80 percent support within the assembly. So that's where, you know, that's where you're starting to see something quite serious happening, you know, where, where, where we're actually seeing these things have really significant political import. But even in, you know, in France, there's big national debates at the moment about the status of the proposals. That's a good thing. Otherwise, these things wouldn't be debated at the same level. In the UK, we've seen the, um, the Committee on Climate Change, which is an official body in the UK, which produces carbon budgets, use the findings from the um, climate assembly to actually set the next carbon budget. So this is really so you know these, these are these aren't game changing in the sense like this is actually radically changed carbon climate policy. But it but it's game changing in the sense of it's it's opening up our imagination to different ways of doing politics. And I think this is really exciting. Three or four years ago, I wouldn't think this sort of thing was possible. You know, it was all happening at local level, and suddenly it's just exploded. And I and I'm delighted because I think. Democratic experimentation is what you need in these sorts of spaces. The tendency is to is to shut down, is to kind of become more authoritarian. And actually, I think what we need to do is become much more radically democratic when faced with these kinds of challenges. Yeah, and I'm I'm kind of just thinking now of, um, and maybe we can get into this, but I kind of think of these as possibly being a way to shift away from larger referendums, or maybe we can talk about it in context of uh, what are the benefits of public referendums over over a, uh, over a these independent institutions, because I, the first thing that comes to mind is, I guess, Brexit, um, just because of like what, what could have been the outcome if such a big, uh, such a big decision such as Brexit, which does affect future generations, comes into play into something more deliberative. Yeah, so actually, here's here's where U.S. practice is really interesting. So if you're going to stick with referendums, and we can just we can we can debate whether they're a good thing or a bad thing, but you know, in certain states in the U.S., it's it's not just referendum; is it citizens' initiative and popular referendums where you know um, 
ordinary folks can everyday folks can actually propose can propose um uh can put propositions onto the onto the ballot so in oregon you know we're now seeing um an organization called healthy democracy who have who have at times been funded to run these sort of small smaller i mean not not the big hundred but you know maybe 20 or 30 people what they're calling citizen initiative review panels and those panels um hear from the advocates and the and, and the opponents of a of a measure then hear from experts and then write a, a, a you know a recommendation to their fellow citizens saying we've heard all this evidence we think this is really reliable evidence we think this isn't good evidence so, so there are even ways and if you like and this is what I'm saying about mixing and matching. Even even in those states where, or those those polities where referendums and initiatives and other sorts of direct democracy are embedded, you can do interesting sort of combinations and complementarities with it. Um, and again, I mean, I I have issues with referendums in the sense of that worry about the deliberate the extent to which deliberation is embedded. But I also value them in the sense of the power that they give people. So I'm always interested in how you can blend institutions to take the worst out of each of them, if you see what I mean. So, so there's there's one possibility there. Um, but yeah, I mean, it is direct democracy and participatory democracy is not is not does not have to be a rush to the to the referendum to the ballot box. There are other institutional innovations we can think of as well. And we just there's just a paucity of imagination. We just don't you know it's just it's so sad that the sort of, you know, it, it's sort of almost either elected politicians or referendums, and that's the debates. That's just not good enough. We have much more creativity than that. We have much more, um, you know, much more imagination than, than that. And and it, it it does it does sadden me as someone who spent a lot of time being impressed by the sort of the, some of the creativity that has come out of I don't know like participatory budgeting from Latin America or. Or these sort of deliberative mini publics that have emerged, and then and then to sort of sort of imagine that that there are other ways of doing politics. Sorry, you got me going now. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, I apologize. Uh, so we can kind of we can kind of get back in we can get back into the book because uh, you mentioned you no, did no, no, mention no. this is all part of the book. Don't worry, it's all, it's all part it's all, it's all part of the book in the sense of what I was trying to do in the book was to say. We have to think in different ways, and so what we're doing now is saying, like, okay, so how do you combine these things? And that's that's kind of kind of the bit of, of the democratic imagination that I feel is missing at the moment. And and you mentioned uh, participatory uh, budgeting in uh, Latin America. Could could you explain that a little bit more? Um, that was something that kind of piqued my interest. Oh yeah, I mean that was le- well, yes. So I don't think that's that's not so much in relation to dealing with long-term issues, I think. But, but um, yeah, it was a movement that emerged in Brazil um, in, the, in, the, in 1989 from a city called Porto Alegre um, and then kind of has spread all over the world. And, in fact, you've, there's a PB in, um, in New York now and in Paris and other places. But it was much more radical uh, invention of social movements in, um, and political movements in Brazil. And the idea there was, you know, you're, you're facing... This situation where there's endemic corruption and clientelism, and and budgets being um, you know inappropriately used, and the poor are getting poorer, um, and uh, the idea was to sort of create a process by which, through which citizens were able to make demands for saying, look, we, this is the sort of these are the sorts of um, developments we need to see, and also 
had control of um, the rulemaking for the process as well. And, and that, that, that this actually led to, uh, because of the very clever institutional design that put in place, it's actually led to a prioritisation and a redistribution of resources to the poorer communities, into the issues like sanitation, into health, into, um, I mean, these are long-term issues, but they were mm-hmm. done on an annual, they were done on an annual cycle. Um, and I think it's a really interesting way of, sh- and again, it shows the tendency when you develop participatory processes is that the, the wealthy, those with higher incomes, those with higher education dominate. But we've shown through things like randomly selected mini publics through participatory budgeting that actually you can design these spaces so that you incentivize a, 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 a broader, a broader engagement and you design out the kind of domination by by the sort of what you might call the participatory elites or whatever or the political elite. So I'm very that's where I'm really excited and I and I think that there is there's enough evidence now from what's happened in Brazil with participatory budgeting, what's happening in um, Europe and North America and Australia around randomly selected bodies and other other places like Japan, to show that both with these sort of more deliberative and other participatory processes, we can do things differently. And I want to kind of draw on that and say, okay, we know that we can do that, but can we can we create those institutions, those participatory and deliberative institutions that help orientate us towards the long term? So it's not just about you know creating that space for citizens to actually get control, but also to be able to use those spaces to think about the kinds of policies and issues we've been talking about in this conversation. Yeah, right. I mean, you mentioned it there, like, it's just looking at the different examples that do spring up and kind of pulling what works and pulling it apart and seeing what works and what doesn't, and maybe applying it to other examples. Um, And I guess I I do kind of have to ask, what uh, do you, have you thought about kind of what your ideal institution would be for something (laughs) like this? I'm sure you've thought about it. Yeah, but actually, um, the, the 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 more I think in that, I tr- I do think in I do think about that every so often. But then I then I catch myself, mm. <laughs> and, the, and the way I catch myself is um, that is that I tend to think of democracy and democratic institutions as trying to realise a series of goods. Okay, this actually comes from my earlier book that you mentioned, democratic innovation. So. In that book, I suggest that you know democratic institutions. We want to see them realise a number of different goods, and I'll just briefly, you know, like inclusiveness. We want to see sort of realising political equality and popular control, because those are the two basic kind of goods of democracy. But also, we want to see institutions generate considered judgment. So not just a top of the head judgment, but actually judgment based on understanding the available information, understanding the position of others. We want to see processes that are transparent. And we also want to see processes that are efficient in the sense that they don't require too many evenings. You know, we can actually do other things with our time as well. You know, that, I think it was Oscar Wilde, wasn't it? He said, socialism is a great idea, except it just takes up too many evenings. And so, um, you know, same could be said about democracy potentially. So, I, you know, I, and what I've shown in that book and I've shown elsewhere is that no one institution can realise all of those goods. Every institution is a combination of those goods and has its weaknesses. And I I said it two or three times already, there is no institutional silver bullet. So actually what it comes down to is looking at the problem you're facing and thinking about how do you build 
how, how do you reform the institutions that are there already and dysfunctional for various reasons and or supplement them and or replace them with other institutions that might do a better job but when you replace them be aware that that's going to have some uh, you know, under, so, so it's always that constant so that's why i'm saying design is really critical here this con- constant tinkering this constant adaptation and one of our challenges with democracies is most of our institutions that we're where we're trying to deal with 21st century problems are actually 19th century institutions you know we, we really haven't innovated that much and we've innovated everywhere else in our economy in our social lives you know they but our, you know parliament looks a bit like parliament looked in the 19th century so you know do do we need to think more yeah you know do we need surely we do you know um, this rhetorical question surely we do need to think um much much more creatively when we're thinking about problems that people who were designing democratic institutions in the 19th century had no idea of and we we need to recognize that we need to grab that mantle and, and one of the problems is we don't invest in democracy we don't invest in civic infrastructure we don't invest in institutional design and that is a real problem for us and it's going to be and it's and yeah it one of the reasons that that democracy is so dysfunctional at our present time is because we just haven't invested in ourselves and in our institutions so these issues kind of seem quite foundational to the way democracy operates currently around the world um and i guess this is a broad question to kind of wrap things up but i guess i guess i guess uh why why democracy why why shouldn't we throw it out Oh gosh. Okay, I, I, you should have given me warning on that one because uh, you know I've got to get my I've got to get my um, I've got to get my terse response to this rather than my incredibly long lecture series. <laughs> um, so, you know, for me, political equality and popular control are foundational. You know, they, that that this is this is a foundational idea for fl- for for us to flourish as individuals and as com- and, a, and as a community. Um, and how that's realized and how that's expressed institutionally and culturally and systemically will differ from place to place and from time, from period of time to period and time. But those kind of foundational values of, of equality, um, are absolutely critical. And, and I, so I think of that in philosophical terms, but I also think of it empirically. And if I look at, you know, if we were to do a contemporary comparative analysis of suffering, I would suggest that you know um, that democracies do pretty well on this. So I've I've spent the last last um, uh, twenty of uh, half an hour, forty minutes with you, sort of you know kick giving democracy a good kicking. But you know I want to pick it up at this point and say you know this is this is some creation we came up with here, and just look at the look at what democracy isn't. And realize what you lose when you when 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 you you know when you lose it, and it always it always pains me when you look at sort of new democracies and people people sort of you know queuing around queuing queuing incredibly long queues you know to desire that desire to vote in you know sort of in my local when we have our local uh, local council vote sometimes it's ten percent or fifteen percent of people who bother turning out, and that that really does worry me. So so I. The, for me, the why democracy? Because for, because I really believe that that's the political conditions under which um, we can flourish together, collectively. 
I think other political systems will allow some people to flourish over others, and they may do better under that. But I'm I'm interested in the collective. I'm interested in I'm I'm interested in the fact that you know how are we going to live together, and how are we going to construct that future together, and that requires for me democracy, um, and so the kind of trends that we're seeing of people asking that question as you just did why democracy and that then people are asking it more and more and some of our democratic leaders unfortunately seem to be asking that more and more um you know is is a, is a question that we have to give a firm response to and, and it's a point it's where you have to make a collective stand well, Sorry, so i got my high horse there no that that is exactly um what what i was looking for i was looking for something <laughs> uplifting um, <laughs> <laughs> um, Graham, we've taken up a lot of your time for today. So finally, I guess, where are you off to next? What are you working on currently? Oh, what am I working on now? Um, I'm actually working on a very short book on um, COVID, um, sorry, Democracy in a Pandemic, it's called. And it's with a, it's with a charity in the UK called Involve, who, who, are, who are participatory, who, who organise participatory and deliberative processes. And at the start of COVID, we set up a blog series, which you can go to on the Involve website, which is involve.org.uk. And it's called A Democratic Response to COVID-19. And we just invited a bunch of um, activists and writers and thinkers and policymakers to kind of respond to this question about how could our response be more deliberative and be more participatory? And there's about 40 or 40 odd blogs up there from, from, from over the last year. And we're doing a book now with the University of Westminster Press, where we're bringing together a short, a small selection of those blogs with a with a with some short commissioned essays, and we're producing this book, which is kind of reflecting back over the last year, and asking, you know, why couldn't we have done this in a more participatory and responded in a more participatory and deliberative process, uh, in a more participatory and deliberative manner? And from where there are examples of that happening. What can we learn for the future? Because there are going to be other emergencies and there are other emergencies we have to deal with. And so, you know, that's a really exciting project because that's 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 my diversity point. That's a, a whole bunch of different voices in there saying sometimes different and contradictory things. But that's an exciting project. So I'm looking forward to that coming out. Well, thank you very much for your time and thank you uh, for being here today. And thank you to our listeners for joining us for our discussion of uh, Graham Smith's new book entitled Can Democracy Safeguard the Future, recently published by Polity. Bye for now. Kyle, it's been a real pleasure. Thank you.